The Scotiabank Women Initiative is a signature program designed to increase economic opportunity for individuals who identify as women or non-binary to be successful now and in the future. This unique offering helps women pursue their best professional and financial futures by providing unbiased access to capital and tailored solutions, bespoke specialized education, holistic advisory services, and mentorship. For more information, visit scotiabankwomeninitiative.com. Welcome to the Startup Women Podcast, a show where we connect you, Canada's powerful cohort of women-identifying founders, to real stories and case studies of women-building businesses, supported by true, tactical advice from thought leaders and industry experts. I'm your host, Kayla Isabel, CEO of Startup Canada. Each month, I'll be sharing the mic with one founder and one expert. Together, we will dive into real stories and scenarios and uncover actionable advice for women entrepreneurs across Canada. From funding and hiring to sales and scaling strategies, on this show, we cover the most important topics so you can deconstruct the challenges of starting and running a business with knowledge that goes beyond the surface level. Let's get started. Expressing our emotions at work is not always easy, but what if paying more attention to our behaviors and emotional needs made us better leaders? What if we could be leaders who hire according to their emotional inventory, operate in a more self-aware state, and create emotionally tuned and strong teams that support business growth? Daisy Wright, who supports folks as they transition in their careers and guides them as they enter new leadership roles, discusses how emotions show up at work for first-time leaders, providing examples that we can all learn from. You need to be self-aware. You need to know what is it, where's my weak point, or how do I come across when I'm speaking to somebody else? Am I this bossy, bossy type who wants things done any and any way? Or am I the person, am I this person who's going to say, let's sit and talk? What needs to get done? Carolyn Stern is an emotional intelligence instructor and expert who draws on Daisy's experience to really illustrate principles and tactics that will encourage you to feel what you feel deeply so you can be an emotionally strong leader. And it wasn't that I was an emotional person that was getting me in heaps of trouble. Being emotional just means I feel things deeply. What was getting me in trouble is I wasn't learning how to manage my emotions. Why are we so afraid of emotions? You know, they're they're not final. They're they're not always factual. Uh, they're fleeting. Daisy Wright is the founder and chief encouragement officer of the Wright Career Solution and an award-winning executive career coach. Daisy helps mid-career professionals, emerging leaders, and executives find satisfying careers and get hired faster. She specializes in career transition coaching, interview coaching, women's leadership development, executive resume writing, and LinkedIn profile development. 
Daisy has also been recognized as a top 100 Black women to watch by Canada International Black Women of Excellence in 2022, is a three-time recipient of the Outstanding Career Leader Award from the Career Professionals of Canada, and was nominated for the 2021 Premier's Award at Conestoga College. Daisy is also the author of the Canadian bestseller, No Canadian Experience, eh? as well as tell stories, get hired. And during the pandemic, Daisy collaborated with 20 women to write 21 Resilient Women, stories of courage, growth, and transformation. We are also joined by our topic expert, Carolyn Stern. Carolyn is the author of The Emotionally Strong Leader and is the president and CEO of EI Experience, an executive leadership development and emotional intelligence training firm. She's a certified emotional intelligence and leadership development expert, professional speaker, and university professor whose emotional intelligence courses and modules have been adopted by top universities in North America. She has also provided comprehensive training programs to business leaders across the continent in highly regarded corporations, encompassing industries such as technology, finance, manufacturing, advertising, education, healthcare, government, and food service. Together, we'll dive into the landscape of women as leaders in the world of work and entrepreneurship and how to be in touch with emotions as we enter new roles, lead teams, and navigate challenging situations at work. Welcome to the show, Daisy and Carolyn. Thank you so much for having me, Kayla. Thanks for having me. I am so excited for this conversation. It is such a great way to kick off the year. Um, and I cannot wait to learn more about both of your experiences in this space and get lots of practical resources because we all love the practical resources here. So before we dive into all things emotional intelligence, women as leaders, all that good stuff, let's learn a little bit more about each one of you and your backgrounds. Daisy, let's kick off with you. How long have you been working in this space? Why did you decide to coach others through their careers? Walk us through that journey a little bit. So I have been doing this full time since 2004. And it's important for people to know that my business started before that. But it took me time to really dive into it full time. And it's important for women to know that you don't just go into business and everything start working immediately. So I got into um, executive career coaching in 2004, and it came about because I was frustrated in the workplace, not being promoted, not getting, you know, feeling as if I was stuck. I had reached the concrete ceiling and just couldn't couldn't move. And I started to examine myself. And I said one day, Daisy, there's so much more to you than this crap. And so it kind of started the, the journey into, um, into my, my business. But in addition, I also started, got an opportunity to teach in the Faculty of Business at Sheridan College here in Brampton. And it was at a time when somebody actually said, who told you you could teach? And I said, watch me, because those are my, watch, my, my phrases, watch me. And jump forward to, to now, where I have been doing this for a while, coaching, as you said at the beginning, emerging leaders, executives, mid-career professionals, to help them find satisfying careers. And so I have used my experience to, uh, to coach my clients. And Carolyn, what did entering you know, the emotional intelligence and leadership development space look like for you? Walk us through your journey. 
Well, um, to be honest, I was sick and tired of listening to successful leaders talk to me about showing emotions should cause shame. And being emotional was a sign of weakness. And I realized that there were so many people, younger generation and older generations, that didn't have an emotional education, me included, right? I didn't have superb emotionally intelligent role models or, or parents. I grew, grew up, you know, in, in a, a family that probably emotion, like many of you, many of your listeners, you know, emotions weren't discussed. And it, it took me 20 years of research to kind of get into, you know, why are we so afraid of emotions? You know, they're, they're not fi final. They're, they're not always factual. Uh, they're fleeting and they come and go. They're incredibly personal. Um, and it's hard to be an objective bystander. And it wasn't that I was an emotional person that was getting me in heaps of trouble. Being emotional just means I feel things deeply. What was getting me in trouble is I wasn't learning how to manage my emotions. And so, like I said, for 20 years now, I've done a ton of research in the field and on my own of really kind of understanding how do you be in the driver's seat of your emotions? And that's what I've been doing since. I've been training people, corporations and students alike, how to be in the driver's seat of their emotions. Mm, I love that. And, and this topic comes up so often, specifically for women entrepreneurs, navigating their emotions, uh, the perception of women being potentially too emotional to be incredible leaders. Um, and these, these, ridiculous, you know, uh, sort of, um, perceptions that, that, um, you know, that you're potentially not worthy of as much investment because of that emotion, um, and, and what that could do to your business and, and sort of this fear around it, which, um, is, is fascinating to see because we have so many incredible statistics to show that women are incredible leaders and using emotion in business, um, is a really powerful tool. We covered this a little bit in our last um, podcast that we did about mindsets and talking about the power of emotions um, and this, you know, sort of public perception and, and how we view women to be too emotional in, in business or, or to be leaders of, of different entrepreneurship ventures. Carolyn, have you heard this a lot over the years? Are you seeing this conversation shift a little bit? How does that settle with you? Well, absolutely. I mean, one of the most common labels women in, in the workplace receive is we're too emotional. And as a child, I was told I was too emotional. Well, guess what? I'm making a living out of it now. The issue is, is not that we're emotional. All emotional means is you feel things deeply. But it really discredits women's ideas or undermines their authority. Emotions, if we can start to believe, are our superpower. It's the factor that leads to more engagement, collaboration, creativity, and innovation and happiness. If I can connect to you on a heart level, that is what's going to engage you into the workplace. That's what's going to make you seen, see, be seen as you know, feeling valued and appreciated for your, your efforts. Mm, that's that's such a helpful reframing, Carolyn. I think that's really powerful for a lot of our listeners. Daisy, as a coach, you support folks as they're entering into new roles, new leadership transitions, navigating other transitions in their careers. Um, what are you seeing with women in particular? Do you see enough women applying for leadership roles in companies or taking on leadership by being the CEO of their own venture and choosing entrepreneurship? What are you seeing these days? Uh, there is no shortage of women applying for leadership roles, for sure. Because they are, we as women are just as ambitious as men and we want to advance. So that's the first thing. But there seems to be, as I mentioned earlier, a concrete wall that they can't get through. 
when we think that in Canada, women make up just over half of the Canadian population, yet they continue to be underrepresented in professional leadership positions. Uh, despite um, spending the equivalent time at a job, they are less likely to, to be promoted. In fact, women are 30% less likely than men to get promoted out of an entry-level position. And they're 60% less likely to move from middle management into the executive ranks. And this, the, these figures are from the Canadian Women Foundation. The point is, because of that gap, it becomes harder for women to really, for those who aspire to be in the C-suite, for example, it becomes harder for them to really catch up or narrow that, that gap. But one of the things I tell women leaders is that you don't need a title to be a leader. Many things that we as women are doing, we are leading, but we sometimes get stuck on this title. I have to be the CEO or the SVP in order to prove who I am. And that's not necessarily the case. The title, yes, it comes with prestige and all of that, but we should not use that to devalue the contributions that we're making in, in the workplace and, and in society in general. Now, in terms of women who are migrating to entrepreneurship, yes, we do have, I have found several people who are entering entrepreneurship, but what they're doing, they are looking at a hybrid situation. And that's actually how I started my business, where you have a goal of starting your business, but you're not just going to jump into it right away. You're going to survey the landscape and see, say, one, do I have the skills? If I don't have the skills, what do I need to learn in order to jump into, into my business? Do I have the money to leave my full-time job and go into entrepreneurship. And if you don't have the money, that's when you are saying to yourself, okay, I am going to continue working, but my plan is over the next several years, I will make my plans to enter entrepreneurship. And that's the route that I, I took. So I used two part-time jobs while I was building um, my business before I was able to launch, uh, to go into it full-time. Amazing. And do you think that, um, you know, looking at first time leaders, that transition obviously is very challenging coming from a traditional organization and doing this for your, the first time independently, potentially with that kind of side hustle or with that very early stage venture. Do you see a lot of challenge in navigating those two very, very different worlds? Um, what are you seeing when people are, you know, really trying to create a, a fantastic team that might just be two people or um, navigating the first-time leadership hurdles? How might they be feeling? What can leaders make sure that they do when they feel comfortable either navigating through that, that first side hustle or their first full-time big leap into entrepreneurship? Yeah, it's challenging from all sides mm. because one, you're entering a, an arena that you're not you're not familiar with, and you start thinking, how am I going to manage? How am I going to be the chief the chief bottle washer here? Meaning, I'll be responsible for admin. 
I will be I will be responsible for marketing. I will be responsible for going out there and telling people about the work that I do. So it's challenging. But what you what women should do is to surround themselves with people and not only women with people who have the skills that they need ask for mentoring ask for sponsorships um talk with people who have already been there attend professional conferences join professional organizations your local chamber of commerce board of trade they are there to help you build your business and of course, you need a group of people in the workplace. I, I tell my clients to create what we call a PBO, their personal board of, of advisors. And these can be mentors, these can be your good friends, these can be sponsors, people who will help you to progress in the field that you're going in, whether at work or in entrepreneurship. And you don't have to get people who will agree with you all the time. You need people who will tell you the truth so that you can avoid the pitfalls that many people have fallen into when they enter entrepreneurship. So, so it, like I said, it can be challenging from different angles. In terms of managing staff, sometimes it's difficult to even manage yourself as an independent, as an only <laughs> person. <laughs> mm -hmm. You need to be self-aware. You need to know what is it, where's my weak point, or how do I come across when I'm speaking to somebody else? Am I this bossy, bossy type who wants things done any and every any and any way? Or am I the person, am I this person who is going to say, let's sit and talk. What needs to get done? How can I help you as my, you as my support person? How can I help you? And how can we together build a business or create a, an environment that will benefit uh, both of us. So yes, it's going to be challenging on all fronts, but if you have the, the, the energy and the, and the um, passion and the perseverance to handle, to tackle those challenges, then success will be yours at some point down the road. Mm. Mm, I love that. And Carolyn, pulling on that string a little bit as well, like looking at first-time leaders that are maybe making that first hire. Um, they've never interviewed folks before. They're not entirely sure what they're really looking for because they you know, are, are wearing every single hat of their business. This is a challenging time for many founders, and we see this be a really important um, milestone for, for a lot of, of uh, women in our network in particular. How can entrepreneurs balance knowing all of the technical needs understanding the support that they actually need in the business while also ensuring that they're emotionally in tune through the hiring and recruiting process and looking at this through the lens of emotional intelligence. What does that look like for a new founder? Well, the very first thing I did was uh, when I, how I went from a solopreneur to a legitimate small business where I have now 10 staff is I didn't an emotional inventory of what I was strong in and what I wasn't strong in. 
And once I knew what I wasn't strong in, so in my case, I lack independence. And people are always surprised by that because I own my own company. I'm financially independent. I'm not married. But I had and still have a very overprotective mother. And so as a child, I kind of grew up with her being a helicopter parent and kind of hoovering over me and not teaching me how to stand on my own two feet. So when I was looking for new hires, I looked for independent people. And, and in fact, one of the resources that uh, I would love people to, to download on our website is we actually give free emotional intelligent questions um, for when you're interviewing. So when you can interview, you know, how do I look for someone? You know, what is the kind of question I ask? Um, you know, tell me about a time when you were self-directed and, you know, needed to make a decision and, you know, not a lot of people, you know, were on your side. How did you stay self-directed and independent with your thoughts and not care about so much about what people thought and still stand, you know, stand your way? That could be a great question to ask a new hire. I think the key is, and it goes back to, you know, the challenge that we have in schools right now, is we focus so much on IQ which is your cognitive intelligence, right? It's your level of reasoning and your problem solving. But much ado has, um, has not been made about emotional intelligence, right? Which is, you know, how well do we use the information our emotions provide as data to make good decisions in the face of daily challenges? How well are all of you able to manage, express, and understand your emotions? How great are you at being able to build social relationships? And how great are you at solving problems and thinking clearly under pressure? I mean, the thing is, you've got to take a look at yourself and kind of figure out what am I good at? What am I not so good at? And in the book, uh, The Emotionally Strong Leader, I talk about, and this is one of the reasons I wrote the book. And by the way, it's called The Emotionally Strong Leader for a per, per, uh, reason. You can be emotional and strong. They're not mutually exclusive. Right. Just because I feel things deeply does not mean that I am not a badass businesswoman. I can make really good rational choices. I just mm. feel things. I feel passion very strongly. But I also, you know, Kayla, Daisy, I feel hurt as well. So when someone hurts me, it hurts me deeply. But that doesn't mean that my emotions are in the driver's seat. I just need to learn the, the, the tools on what is my emotional makeup and what works for me and what doesn't work for me. So there are 15 different emotional intelligent muscles inside of us. Some of them are overutilized, some of them are underutilized, and some of them are just right. And when you go to the gym, right, supposedly I have a six pack under here. <laughs> if I, if I want to bring that out, I need to do more curls, right? If I want bigger biceps, I need to uh, do more bicep curls. Um, if I, you know, I, if I want a, a tighter core, I need to do more crunches. The, the key is, is you've got to figure out what are you strong in? What are you not so strong in? And what are you too strong in? And so for me, as I said, I'm, I'm low in independence. Well, one that I'm too strong in is I'm really flexible. So as a leader, mm. sometimes I flip flop. So if an employee wants sushi, I say, okay, sure, let's have sushi. And another employee wants Italian. I say, okay, let's have Italian. And because I care too much about what people think, I'm flip-flopping. Well, that's not a good combination. Mm -hmm. So in my case, my leadership challenge and work that I have to do is I have to be a little bit more stringent and lower my flexibility and, and put my you know, uh, line in the sand and say, no, we're going for Greek. 
And, and then I have to be a little bit, um, I have to care a little bit less about what people think. But until you understand your mm-hmm. emotional makeup, what makes you who you are, good, bad, and ugly, then how are you able to know who to hire? I basically took my business to a legitimate small business because I finally hired people who had what I didn't. And so it's having those deeper conversations. It's finding out what makes your employees tick, what motivates them, what stresses them out, what, what, how do they want to feel appreciated? What does work-life uh, balance look like for them? Those, as I call it in the book, those inner iceberg conversations, that's what, you know, much of our, our, our communication and our actions is colored by what's below the surface, right? Our past experiences, our personal history, our attitudes, our emotions, our thoughts, our beliefs, our assumptions, our you know aspirations, our, our motivators, our stressors, our fears, all of that. Leaders need to be brave enough to have those deeper conversations when hiring and recruiting so that you can get to know the people that are gonna be joining your company. Mm. That was that was a beautiful <laughs> run through, Carolyn, of so many things that I wanna unpack a little bit further. Um, one one kind of follow-up question to that around even the personal assessment of going through your own EQ. Is that something that you should be doing independently as in I'm self-surveying what Kayla's strengths are and what Kayla's weaknesses are? Or is that an exercise where you actually need to get, you know, to Daisy's point, this board of advisors to, you know, maybe show you some of those spots that you might not be seeing? What's that process look like to actually self-identify or get that feedback from an external trusted um, advisor within your network? Well, it's the first three steps of my six-step model. So the first step is connect with yourself. So take an inventory of yourself. What am I good at? What am I not so good at? Um, and what am I too good at, right? Which is what I call the dark side of emotional intelligence. What am I too good at? That's so interesting. Well, think, about it. think about it, Kayla. If you have too much empathy, let's take that for instance, you can get enmeshed in people's stuff. You, can, um, you don't necessarily set good boundaries. You can wear other people's emotional burdens on your shoulders, right? That's too much empathy. So in your case, if that's the case for you, I might say, let's set up some boundaries. You can have compassion and boundaries at the same time. Whereas with people who don't have enough empathy and they don't know, they don't care what people think and can't put themselves in other people's shoes and have no compassion, I might give them a different emotional intelligence strategy. So the first step is, as I said, connect with yourself. The second step is consult with others, which is what Daisy was talking about. It's reaching out to, you know, five people. And in fact, I give questions in the book of what you can ask others, you know, Hey, I see myself, uh, you know, do you see me as self-directed? Do you think I can control my impulses? Do you, do you feel, mm-hmm. do you know, do you think I can express my emotions constructively? You know, these are questions you ask others. And then once you have your self-perception, as well as uh, what other people see you, then you can, as step three is, clarify your focus. What are those things that people have said? Maybe you have blind spots. I will be honest, the hardest person I ever had to ask was um, my boyfriend at the time. I had to ask, mm. you know, how do you see me? Do you see me as the way I see myself? Well, guess what? There were blind spots. There were things about me that, that my allied strengths that we both saw as my strengths. There were things about me that we both saw as reinforced opportunities but I had blind spots. And guess what? I have yet to meet a leader who who doesn't have blind spots. And it's important to make sure, because our self-perception is inevitably flawed, right? It's it's our life experience (laughs) that tells us the stories. So once you get clarity on what the themes 
people are noticing about you, then you can get clear on, okay, after everything I thought about myself and what everything everyone else said, what are the one or two things I need to work on to be my best self and be the best leader I can be? Mm. Daisy, that, that aligns so beautifully with the, so much of what you were saying earlier. Do you have anything else that strikes you about what Carolyn just chatted through? Oh, oh boy. She, <laughs> Carolyn has said so, so many. She had, she nailed it. She had so many good nuggets about that. And I'll just add, and you can just fit them in where they fall. First of all, in terms of hiring and recruiting as a first-time manager, the first thing you need to do is to stay away from what I call the sameness mentality. That means do not go out looking for somebody who looks and sounds like you. You need diversity of thought. You need somebody, you need to listen to other people with different perspectives. Because together, when you put all of that together, you're bound to succeed. Mm. When you uh, surround yourself with everybody who looks and sounds like you, then you're not, you're not ready to grow. So that's one thing. The other thing is, what, one, of the, one of the tools I use with my clients is a tool called the 360 Brand Personal Survey. And similar to some of the tools that Carolyn mentioned, what that does, it's a, it's a 360 survey, but it's not the performance, it's not the 360 performance survey that one would do at work. This one is more about your personal brand. It's, it, it's like, who are you? Who am I? It helps, it helps people to determine who am I? What, what do people think about me? Because sometimes we have the blind spots. We think we're the greatest thing since sliced bread when probably that's not true. So you get a full look at, you get a 360 view of what people think, who you are and what people think about you. Mm -hmm. And because it's a survey and you, I send it, I have clients send it out to a number of people. Then when they get the feedback, they're able to dissect the information and come up with a good enough idea of, you know, who they are, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, where they should be, where they should be looking to, to upskill or upgrade themselves, whether they're too overbearing or, you know, whether they are one of these domineering person who, who cannot, who like, who enjoys stepping on people's toes. So that's one of the tools that I am. Um, I actually use. I love the diversity of perspective, um, sort of call to action to make sure that you're not biasing people who look and sound and, you know, have a similar background to you. I've definitely found myself in different managing moments, uh, sort of being attracted to those candidates or sort of leaning in um, and having to really check that bias. How do you approach right. though these moments of, um, you know, wanting to work with colleagues or wanting to hire someone who's going to understand you and maybe your your strengths um, and be able to play into those because you feel they're going to be complementary to your work. How do you understand the balance between what are complementary sort of EQ elements or, or complementary um, 
sort of personality traits, I guess, that are going to make you collaborate really well, but bringing in enough diversity that you're not just the same mirrored human, you know, approaching things the exact same way. I've always struggled with this of trying to build really high functioning teams and, and supporting other founders in a collaborative model where you have some type of foundation and alignment, but enough diversity that you have a whole mix of strengths and weaknesses and, and you know, a, a really colorful team in that way. Do you have any advice on on supporting founders through some of those um, kind of challenging calls to make sure that they're actually collaborating really well with the people they're bringing on their teams? Uh, first of all, you, you you have to get rid of what we call the halo effect, mm. and that means somebody you might be interviewing someone, and for the first few seconds, there's something about that person that you really really like. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And everything that person says after that is going to, you're going to take that as, as the truth. Oh my goodness. She's so great. We have got to get her on our team. The reverse can be true where the, the first few seconds of, um, in talking with, in interviewing somebody, there's just something about that person that you just might not like. Again, you have to get rid of that. And that's what we call the halo effect. Get rid of of those kind of things. But ask them the questions. You know who you're looking for. You know where your weaknesses are. And you can literally say to that person, listen, I'm great at this. But when it comes to and whatever that scenario is, you know what? I'm not too good. How would you handle this? Or tell me a time when you had to, you were in a space like that. Tell me what you did. And then listen for their story. They have to give you, one, the situation, what was happening at the time. Then they have to give you, uh, tell you the actions that they took. And then they have to show you the results or what I call the, um, the impact. What impact did they make? So based on their answer, you can say, Yes, this explains it. This is somebody who I know could solve this particular problem for me. If I'm not too great with managing staff and this person is a people person and you have you discover through asking them those questions, you discover that, yes, I need somebody to compliment me here. This would be somebody I would I would consider. Mm-hmm. Carolyn, what about you? Do you think there's ever such a thing as, as too much variety of EQ on a team? Do you ever hit a limit that you need some sort of common ground? Well, I think I think it's knowing, again, this goes back to self-awareness. I think mm-hmm. it's knowing not what you're... So I know that I need... I don't want other needy people like me on my team mm. because that doesn't serve me well. That triggers me. If I gave someone, what, what do you think? And they kept said, oh, I don't know. What do you think? That would move us around <laughs> and around and around. We wouldn't get anywhere. So mm. I knew that's what triggers me. So I am specifically looking for resourceful people that if they don't know the answers, they won't just give up like I tend to, right? I'm looking for people who will be resourceful, who if they don't know the answers, will find the answers because I know that's a trigger for me. But I also know, and you mentioned about personality tests versus emotional intelligence. Personality tests like Myers-Briggs or DISC, these are based on your preferences, not necessarily Uh if you're good at it. Mm. So I might prefer to use my right hand than my left hand 
That's my preference, but that doesn't mean my writing in my right hand is good. It's just my preference. Whereas EQ, what I love about the EQ assessment is it tells you your what you think your level of emotional intelligence is for those 15 different skills. And so again, when I think back to who I hired on my team, you know, as a university professor, people always think, oh, education must be really important to you. And, you know, well, actually, it's not. In fact, when I look at my business development manager, the reason I hired her is she actually was a student of mine. And before she became before she graduated, after she was done my class, so there was no conflict of interest. I said, what are you doing for the rest of your life? Because I could see that she even though she didn't go to school for sales and business development, I could see that she was such a great listener. And when I saw that in her, I thought, oh, my gosh, this would be an amazing person to do our sales and business development because they're constantly listening to people's needs and trying to figure out a program. And it was actually that skill, not the fact that she has an education in, 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 in listening because she doesn't. Right. I mean, we don't teach these kids how to, how to listen. We just teach them how to advocate. Let's be honest. But. So it was that I could see that, okay, what are the skills that this job needs to be really good at? I thought, you know, if you want business development, you want someone who's not always talking, that is listening to other people's needs, that is creative, mm-hmm. that's coming up with a good uh, program or strategy. And in her case, she happened to be a soccer a soccer captain of, of the team at the university. And she and I realized, well, here's someone who's all about results. She cares about, mm. you know, score and the numbers. So I could see those skills transferable in that role. When I look at my program manager who builds all our training programs and our PowerPoints and our workbooks, my gosh, she was someone that was attention to detail. She was someone that absolutely would dot all her I's and cross all her T's. Well, I need someone like that mm. to be in that role because they're going to be looking at you know, hundreds of workbooks and making sure everything makes grammatical sense. And so again, she didn't go to school to be a program developer, but I could see those skills in her and that's what I looked for. So I think it's a combination, figuring out what they prefer, what their preferences are, what their natural abilities are, what their natural talents are, right? Let's get away from the school that, you know, let's think about what Gallup did, right? Gallup did a study and, you know, if a kid comes home with a report card that has, you know, an A in English, an A in science, an A in social studies, but a D in math, what do the parents focus on? Well, they focus on the D when they shouldn't be focusing on the D, they should be focusing on their strengths, what they are good at. When I see someone that comes into um, an interview I try to find out what they are good at. And if they are good at something that I am not, that's probably a good fit because that's going to expand and scale my business beyond what I am capable of. Amazing. And and this approach that, you know, it's not a one size fits all. There's a perfect archetype of, you know, individual personalities that make up a perfect team, right? There's so much fluidity here, mm-hmm. um, but that really concrete self-awareness and having the courage to have that foundation in every conversation. Like, I love that we just come back to this, um, you know, independent awareness that we can do that work. We can, you know, invest that time and energy. And then all of those follow-up decisions feel much more thoughtful. And um, I love that that approach, Carolyn, and, and this sort of framework that you're presenting 
presenting that feels really practical, which I love <laughs> on this podcast. Let's talk about bringing all of these frameworks, all of these various tools, um, and sort of basic understanding that that we've you know hopefully achieved by going through some of these uh, resources in how we navigate through difficult moments. This you know especially over the last couple of years, I feel like leaders have been riddled <laughs> with difficult moments, um, and this looks different in every organization, right? I would love to get some feedback, Daisy, maybe starting with you um, and maybe a bit of a case study of an example where you had to navigate through a difficult situation, you know, a client situation, maybe something was unclear, um, what happened, how you felt during it. Give us a bit of a case study of how to navigate through a difficult moment like that. So I had engaged with this particular organization. It's an organization that I've done some work with before. And they contacted me and asked me to develop two workshops and we, we talked, they introduced, they told me what the budget was and all of that. And I said, fine. And I went ahead and I started developing one workshop and then, and delivered that. And so I sent them the invoice. Uh, they had asked me after that, how much to deliver the workshop, not how much to develop, how much to deliver. So I sent them the additional fee. Well, when I sent them my invoice, they were like, are you kidding? We didn't discuss that and, you know, and stuff. So I was in shock because they were the ones who told me about the budget and I built the, the workshop based on, on, on the budget. And then they started talking about, you know, me not being transparent and stuff. And I'm telling you, I was livid because I was saying to myself, this, I've been in this space for so long, I'm well known. And here, you know, is somebody questioning questioning my integrity. And we were there going back and front. And I said to them, you know, I do have my notes. And if it comes down to it, then, you know, that's what, you know, we'll have to go with. I think because I said I had my notes, then the mood kind of changed. And, and then I said to them, one, it's either I'm going to be paid the full amount or none at all. I said, my, my, my character, my integrity means more to me than this, this money. And then I decided, I said, you know what? I'm not going to accept the payment. But because they had already discussed this matter with their team and I'm there saying to myself, oh my God, people are now going to, you know, somehow hear about this and then get the wrong impression. So I said, no, I would like to, you have discussed it with your team, so I'm going to write to your head, which is a senior person, to let them know my side of the story. And um, then they had to get their, their head person into it. And we had a meeting. He, he called me. We set up a Zoom meeting. We had He was apologizing so many times during the conversation. And eventually, because of what happened, eventually I accepted the payment. But I kind of blame, I put some blame on myself as well. And that's what I want um, women leaders uh, or entrepreneurs to know. It doesn't matter how cordial the relationship might be. You still have to maintain that business mentality, meaning you have to make sure all the I's are dotted and all the T's are crossed. Because I was basing all of this on the prior relationship that we had, not 
thinking that I had to get this thing written in stone. And, and because of that, I ended up in that um, particular situation. So it doesn't matter. And even with my clients, we have a client agreement that they have to sign before I start working with them. So nobody can say later on, well, you didn't say that. But I think I had my guard down in this particular situation and it just flew over my head. But it was a learning experience for me to say, "Uh uh-uh, get back to reality, get back to the business of conducting business properly rather than assuming that, making assumptions that, what was said was probably not too clear. So that's the big lesson I gained from that. And that's what I would encourage anyone, whether you're getting into your own business or whether you're signing a a job offer, actually. I've had two clients. I'm working right now with two clients who signed, who went to new job, new roles. Then they got there. The job, the job description was different. The title was different. And now they're trying to sort that out. So a lot of that, we have to be careful um, in terms of making sure that all you, you have read the, read everything and everything is clear before you start doing the work or before you accept that that job posting, Mm. that job role. It's like a boundary. It keeps things in, but it also (laughs) makes sure that other things don't come out, that having clarity of what's even within that boundary is helpful. Interesting. Absolutely. Carolyn, I would love to talk to you as well about, you know, emotionally strong leader. You mentioned the the title of your book is very intentionally (laughs) worded. What does it mean navigating through really challenging conversations or parts of, of your business where emotional intelligence and leadership sort of intersect? Do you see leadership kind of being a part of the EQ space already? What does that look like? Well, I think it needs to be a part of the, uh, the leadership space, even if it's not. And I think you said it earlier, yeah. some leaders are, are realizing the necessity of it. We all have complicated lives. And when we get to the office, we don't put our, you know, there is no on and off switch for emotions, right? We have to, we feel things and being aware of our emotions and how they come to help us and hurt us solve problems is really key. And I think you said it really well, Kayla, it's this balance. It's finding out when do you share, when do you share too much? And when do you share too little? It's really that finding that sweet spot. Everyone wants the quick fix. How do you become emotionally intelligent? It depends. (laughs) It depends on your own emotional makeup, what you're strong on, strong on, what you're weak on, what what needs some work for you. But also, it depends on the situation and the person involved with. So, for instance, in Daisy's case, I think she gave a great example. She kind of let her guard down because she knew these people on a personal note. So she wasn't in that mindset of this is business. I don't have to have everything in writing, and that's where miscommunications, mishap, Mm -hmm. and misunderstandings come from. It's when we assume, and this goes back to my inner iceberg conversations, right? What killed the Titanic was not the little piece of ice above the water. It was that big, deep, deep iceberg below the water, right? That was 400 Mm. feet deep and 50 to 100 feet wide. I think what we need to realize is that we are a lot like that. You're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. All you see are my communications and my actions, but you don't see my personal history, my attitudes, my assumptions. So maybe Daisy was making some assumptions. Maybe she was making um, uh, some, you know, she had some preconceived notions. Maybe she had some beliefs about this client and those were 
um, clouding her judgment on how to set up this de- business deal. What what I would say, you know, for for um, listeners like Daisy that are in that situation, one of the things I would say is, what are you feeling? And Daisy said it herself. She learned a lot from this situation. What are you feeling? And my second favorite question is, what is that feeling telling you about you and the situation? So she had said that she, at one point she said uh, she was shocked. And then at the next point she said she was livid. Well, what are those two feelings telling her about her? Each one of those feelings are incredibly powerful. Let's just take um, frustration and anger. We feel frustration and anger, uh, anger many times throughout the week, right? Well, what's the causal difference between the two? Whenever I ask that question, it, like the audience goes blank. It's like a deer in headlights. But we feel these things all the time. Well, the causal difference between frustration and anger is frustration stems from unmet expectations. Anger stems from injustice or unfairness. So how many of us, me included, have been frustrated but shown it as anger? Well, the problem is if I show it as anger, you in the workplace are just going to think I'm angry rather than having those inner iceberg conversations saying, hey, Daisy, I'm noticing you're stomping down the hallway. What the story I'm telling myself is you're angry. Is that correct? And she might go, no, I'm not angry at all. I'm actually really frustrated. And then if she knows she's frustrated, well, maybe there's some unmet expectations. And maybe then she and I can have a conversation about those unmet expectations. I think that's the key is we need to learn how are we feeling and what is that feeling telling us about us and the situation? Because that can teach us a lot of information if we stop being so afraid of our feelings. Mm. And it's such a, a spectrum of emotion that that we have been experiencing, you know, especially the last couple of years and and with new leaders as well. I think in particular, if you're taking on a new venture, you're both proud and you're also terrified and you're feeling confident and also potentially vulnerable. These like juxtapositions um, of, of all of these different feelings, that has a weight to it. And that, you know, impacts how we show up in, in different situations. Um, and, you know, I, I love the Inside Out Pixar movie kind kind of idea that like we've got all these little characters in our brain and they're talking to each other and there's sort of these intersections of all these different very complicated emotions, um, but they manifest or maybe present differently based on you know who you are. How do you actually get in touch with those emotions and almost decouple them and saying, I'm both frustrated and I'm feeling this way or um, you know, being truly aware of what that emotional lineup looks like? How do you start that? Carolyn, do you have some suggestions on how we even enter into that conversation? And I'm gonna give I'm gonna give your listeners a great exercise because I know you said they love takeaways. So I want them to take a piece of paper. On that piece of paper, write down four columns. The first is your emotion. That's the column for your emotion. The second column is your trigger. The third column is your response. And the fourth column is your impact. Now let's use an example. Let's say your boss just gives you an unrealistic expectation and deadline and you're angry. Okay. So the trigger or sorry, the emotion is you're angry. The the trigger was your boss just gave you an unrealistic deadline. Now I have two choices. So I always tell my clients before you do anything, press pause. And I want you to write down a high EQ response and a low EQ response. So the low EQ response might be Kayla, Daisy, screw you boss. I'm not doing it, you know, And the impact of that response could be insubordination or I could lose my job. 
A high EQ response might be, you know what, I need to negotiate. I need to ask for more time on this project. Or I need to say, you know what, project X that you gave me last week that's due tomorrow, can that be put off till till Friday? So the, the response would be um, negotiate. The impact might be, okay, your boss might not be thrilled about you um, negotiating, but at least they'll respect you for setting a boundary. And once you write both of those responses down and the impact, that gives you the, the space and the clarity to make a conscious choice. And so if we can stop being so afraid of our feelings and look for the meaning that our feelings provide. I love it. And what I love about this prompt is it's so simple. It's this, this four section framework is so simple. It forces that breath that the number of decisions I would have made differently if I had just taken one breath <laughs> instead of just running, you know, in a, in a different direction. And I love that the response is positioned as a choice and not just a reaction. That's, I, th I think that's such a complicated part of emotions, right? You, you feel like this visceral pattern or, you know, this response that you have no control over. This gives you that control and that sense of, okay, I have multiple options here and then understanding the impact or the consequence after. Um, and I love that, that beat that gives you that sort of pick your own adventure option. So Daisy, I would love to get, you know, a little bit more detail as well from your, your side on a coaching perspective in bringing emotions to work, how you encourage people to do that, bringing their whole selves, recognizing them, um, but managing the professionalism of that space. I've really struggled with this over the years that, you know, when do you share? When, it, when do you know that a boundary has been maybe um, exceeded and you have overshared or compromised a professional relationship? Is that a conversation that's changing a lot in, in how much is being too much in the, the vulnerability space or um, showing your emotions at work? How do we know when we've hit too far on that sort of um, boundary line? You know what? I think at the heart of all this is trust. Because if you're able to trust people, then you're able to share and you feel more inclined to share more about you. And the workspace, unfortunately, does not provide for that. There are so many things, so many things happening because we have certain expectations of other people, right? Somebody might say, well, you know what? I don't like that. I don't like that your hairstyle isn't professional. And I might be saying, well, it looks professional to me. That's all a part of who I am. So you can't keep saying to people, bring your whole self to work. And then when they come to work, they have to code switch. You know, you have to be open and it has, and you know, the good thing is that these days, these conversations are taking place and people are becoming more, not only more empathetic, but they're actually being more compassionate. It, it, it stems right from being, from trusting the people who you're working with, from trusting the, the, the person who you report to. You have to feel that. Mm, I love that. It can't just be spoken. It really has to be felt. And, and that's an emotional feeling, right? Like if you feel that sense of authenticity and that trust in that, 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 uh, that space is being created safely. So in you know difficult conversations, naturally in the workplace, conflict happens. Um, and as a part of the whole leadership experience, 
are there any tools or perspectives in how we navigate through these moments? How can leaders prepare for these tough conversations, being both empathetic, potentially compassionate, understanding where people are coming from, um, but also building really high-functioning, productive, challenged teams that are doing excellent work? Do you have any tools around how to navigate both that professional um, and sort of empathetic side of the difficult conversation? Carolyn, let's start with you. Yeah. So actually, as Daisy was sharing, I was thinking um, of a quote that really resonates with me a lot. And I, I share this with a lot of our clients, which is, you are not the standard to which everything is judged. Ooh, I like that. I just got mm-hmm. full body chills, Carolyn. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, wow. That's a good one. is thinking her hair looks fabulous, but someone at work thinks it doesn't for whatever bias they may have. That doesn't mean Daisy is right and they are wrong or vice versa. It just means there's a difference of opinions. I think the key really is, is to, you know, you mentioned, you know, how do we prepare for these difficult conversations? Well, here's the first thing. It would never have to be a difficult conversation if you gave regular feedback. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So a difficult conversation happens when you've kept your mouth shut far too long. Mm. As leaders, we need to remember we're teachers. You need to tell your people what a good job looks like. What does success look like? You need to explain to them how they get an A in your class, how they get a B in your class, how they get a C in your class or in their job, right? We need to teach them that. And the one thing that I'd say, the biggest misconception that I have to retrain leaders and this is for all types of leaders, regardless of gender, is I know the answers to my students' test, but if I give it to them, they ain't learning. I agree. No, that's a, a great um, a great reminder. And, and you know, it's almost a form of procrastination in some ways, which makes things so much worse when you continue to procrastinate a task. It makes it bigger than if you had just done it when, you know, sort of nipping something in the bud or done it when, you know, you identified that, um, that point in time where it first started happening. Um, and that's a simple thing that all of us can implement in our day to day, right? Issuing that regular feedback, having the courage to show up, and with that really clear intention that it's to make you know that support uh, available to make us better, to you know a sort of align to high quality, which you know a lot of people in in organizations are they want to do good work, right? You want to feel like you're set up to do good work. Looking forward, taking everything that we've unpacked in today's conversation, what do you both think needs to really continue to happen within businesses, within workplaces, to ensure that emotions aren't feared? that they're encouraged, that we have these frameworks to have really productive conversations around emotions. Um, What do you think is next and where do we really need to lean into? Um, Daisy, let's start with you. Um, So let me just touch on the feedback that Mm. Carolyn was talking Mm. about just now. That is so important. We got accustomed to waiting until the end of the year or the end of, you know, and to get that performance review. And that's when a can, uh, uh, an employee is going to hear, well, in March you did this, and because of that, we can't give you an exceed expectation. So the good thing is that leaders are now realizing that constant feedback is important. It, it's important to build relationships, but it's also important to build the, 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 the confidence of the employee. So that's very, very important. In terms of where we go next, <clears throat> I think we we can also we can now reflect on what the pandemic 
has has brought. Um, and I'm, I'm looking more more on the, the positive parts of it. And it has allowed us to take a break. It has allowed employees to realize that one, they do have value. And two, they don't have to stick to that um, rigid boundary that the employer has set for them. You know, they, they've, they've now realized that there's more to life than just work, work, work. And so you'll, you'll, you'll realize now that the hybrid work situation is going to be the norm. And people are, people are foregoing the high salary for their mental health. They're saying, yes, you pay me, but my mental health is important. My family, my family life is important. I shouldn't be spending, you know, X number of hours commuting when I have a two-year-old or a six-year-old who needs me there. And so people are making choices. I mean, I made that choice when my kids were younger. And I mean, they're adults now. But one of the reasons I left corporate, in addition to being frustrated, was the fact that I got home one night and my five-year-old said, Mom, did you come home last night? And that thing hit me mm. here. And I'm saying, here I am, slaving away at work, not getting the promotion that I have worked for. And I was studying at the time, so I was doing part-time study. So when I left, on, when I tucked them in in bed on Sundays, they didn't see me again until Tuesday evening. And to hear a five-year-old saying that to me really put things in perspective. And that was long before the pandemic yeah. where, you know, people have realized, yes, life is more than just, just, you know, um, just work, work, work. So that's, um, that's what's happening. And that's a good part of it. We are now people are more relaxed. They can determine how they work, when they work. And even though some organizations want to stick to what they know, the old system, they're going to lose in the long run. We have to, there has to be a happy medium where we are satisfying, we as leaders, are satisfying our needs, but then we are also paying attention to what employ what employers what the employer needs and how can we support them so that we benefit as a team. Mm. Carolyn, what do you think is up next in this space? Really simple. My call to action for everyone is emotion shouldn't be feared, but faced head on. And when you are a leader. Um, asking others how they're feeling and talking about the emotional issues your, your, your people are experiencing, especially those that are often ignored, matters. So I think we need to be brave. And we can be brave and afraid at the same time. Uh, be brave <laughs> and afraid, but I think we need to be more brave and have these conversations because as Daisy said, it's not just about the paycheck. It's about making sure they feel valued, appreciated, and fulfilled in their role. And the only way they're going to do that is if you get to know them at the heart and not be so afraid of emotions. As I said, you can be emotional and strong. They're not mutually exclusive. 
I love that. And so wrapping up this episode, I would love to give you both a moment to share any final resources, piece of advice, um, or just maybe some final words um, to our, our audience of a lot of early stage founders, maybe navigating all of these things and all of these various emotions. And in addition to, you know, the impacts of, of the pandemic in the last couple of years, um, any final takeaways you'd want to leave uh, the team with? Carolyn, let's start with you. So, I mean, quite frankly, being emotional is someone who feels things deeply, right? And has strong reactions, but you can learn to be in the driver's seat of your emotions. And in the book, the reason I wrote the book is because you got to gain the, the emotional skills and mental strategies to have the capacity to lead with strength, and, but also with kindness, with a strong heart, a strong mind and a kind heart. And the book is equipped for, I have 60 different strategies, right? On, on tested skills and strategies that you can use depending on your own emotional makeup. But I wanna be real clear. Being stronger than your emotions is not strong arming your feelings or having a steely resolve not to feel. It simply means that we need to acknowledge, we need um, to understand and accept that we all feel things, good or bad, right or wrong, we all feel things. And you can identify that your emotions and feelings contain wisdom. And you can use that information to guide your behaviors when confronted with emotional triggers that can lead to hasty reactions and undisciplined behaviors or disrespectful communications. So, you know, as, as Dan uh, Siegel says, the psychologist says, you got to name it to tame it. So we've got to start recognizing that we all have feelings. We're human. It's it's our universal language that we can all relate to. So if, if we mm. talk about DEI, that is the universal language we can all relate to. So if we can start not being so afraid of our feelings and fe uh, face them head on, I think we'll be in a in a way better place. And the future of work will be better for it. Daisy, any final resources, uh, recommendations or piece of advice you want to leave our listeners with? Okay, so a couple of the resources I would add. I mentioned Trust by David Johnston, our former governor general. Very good. He has 20 ways to build a better country. And that takes into account not only the country, but even the workplace and the, and the relationships that we develop in the workplace. The other resource is a book called How to Be an Inclusive Leader. And it's by Jennifer Brown. And it talks about your role in creating cultures of belonging where everyone can thrive. That's important as leaders, but also as entrepreneurs. We need that. And the final piece is a good, the final book or resource is one by um, Carol S. Dweck, Mindset. We need, yes. It's a good it's one. A, yes, it's a changing your mindset. Are you in a growth mindset? Or are you stagnating? What's the what's happening in your in here? Um, is it that oh my goodness, I'm in this spot and that's how I was made? Or no, I am in this spot, I don't like where I am, and I'm going to find ways to get out of of where I am. So those are my three resources I would add right away. I love it. I love a good, uh, I feel like we could have a book club on the Startup Women podcast. <laughs> Books that I have not been able to get through all of them yet, but that is so helpful, super practical. Um, and I want to thank both Carolyn and Daisy. Thank you so much for sharing all of these different case studies, examples, frameworks, resources, and your lived experience navigating all of this. Um, so thanks so much for joining us on the Startup Women podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for having me.
Thank you so much for joining us on the Startup Women podcast, where we are committed to telling the stories of women entrepreneurs and uncovering actionable advice that goes beyond the surface level. The Startup Women podcast is produced by Lauren Hicks and Maddie Stiles. Visit startupcan.ca to explore the Startup Women flagship program and access advisory support and free resources. Be sure to check out the show notes to access important links, resources, and information that we mentioned during today's episode. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to another episode next month.